Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the 12th chapter. We are returning this morning to our journey through the Gospel of John, starting the second half of this great book. We're going to be looking this morning at the first eight verses of chapter 12. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at, with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot... One of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God who speaks and that you have given to us your eternal and faithful word. We pray this morning, Lord, that as we look into your word, that we would know more about you, that we would love you more, and that we would serve you with joy. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We return this morning to the Gospel of John. You may recall that when we left off, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And the Jewish leaders had formed a plot to kill him. The first half of John's gospel centers on Jesus' public ministry. And the signs that he did validating his work and his mission. Now in chapter 12, we turn to the last week of Jesus' life. It has been called by many the most important week in history. In this week, we will see Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his cursing of the barren fig tree, his final conversations with his disciples, the Last Supper, his trial, his crucifixion, and his death. John slows down to give us a full picture of this week. Half of his gospel is centered on the events 
of this final week. But John is not alone. The others are not far behind. Mark focuses 40% of his gospel on this week. And Matthew, a full one-third of his gospel. Even Luke, who covers so much in his history, takes one quarter of his gospel on this one week alone. But we begin this week here with a dinner. A dinner at which a remarkable event takes place. The event has great symbolism. We'll see that in a bit. But it also gives us insight into two responses to Jesus. And Jesus' response to them. This morning we'll look at three people. Mary, Judas, and Jesus. And through these three people the Lord will tell us what our hearts need to show. How our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is to be. Let's begin then by starting with Mary. John sets the scene for us. In verse 1 he says it is six days before the Passover. Now John doesn't make explicit how much time elapsed between the very last verse of verse 11 and chapter 12 verse 1. But we do know that other Gospels record events in between here. Jesus doesn't go directly from Ephraim, where he is at the end of chapter 11, to Bethany. The other Gospels record other events like the conversion of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. The healing of blind Bartimaeus and his friend. Jesus travels a bit of a scenic route back here to Bethany. But John's marker here at the beginning of this chapter clearly places this event before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're going to look at that next week. Jesus comes into Bethany before he will go into Jerusalem, and he is with familiar people. People familiar to Jesus, and I hope people familiar to us. You see, Bethany is where Lazarus and Martha and Mary live. John reminds us of the close relationship that they have with Jesus as they're all named as being a part of the dinner. In verse 2, we see that Martha served at the dinner and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. And Mary is not far away, as we will see in just a moment. Jesus here is being honored at a dinner at the home of a man called Simon the leper by Matthew and Mark. Now, Simon, I think, was another story of Jesus' grace. You see, he was called Simon the leper by the gospel authors to distinguish him from Simon the zealot, from Simon Peter, and from Simon the Pharisee. There's a lot of Simons. And so we want to know exactly which Simon it was. But Simon had been healed by Jesus, I think we can assume. There's two things that we see here. First, if Simon was an actual leper, people would not go to his home for a meal. They would all be made unclean, especially before the Passover. And also, he's throwing this feast at his home in Jesus' honor. I think we can imagine it is a thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for him. But this was also likely a celebration of a greater blessing. A greater thank you, if you will. 
for raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, having this dinner and coming and participating would have been a bold and brave thing to do. Showing their love for Jesus. Now you may ask and say, Pastor, I know you like for us to have hospitality and to be in each other's homes. But I never heard that called courageous or bold. What do you mean by here? Well, if you'll remember, at the very end of chapter 11, verse 57, the Pharisees told everyone, they gave orders that if anyone even knew where Jesus was, they were to report him to the Pharisees so they could arrest him. And I think implicit in that order is, and if you don't, we'll come and get you. And here not only does Simon and Lazarus and Martha and Mary and all of their friends know where Jesus is, they're honoring him with a dinner. So this is a bold and courageous thing to do. And in the midst of this dinner, as they are coming around and eating, let me set the scene for you if you're unfamiliar with dining practices in the first century. They didn't sit at big oak dining room tables in large chairs. I don't think they had plate chargers and napkin holders and etc. that we would for a formal meal. What they did was they had a common meal in the center, perhaps with a kind of lazy Susan or something that could be moved around where the food was. And the guests for the meal lay on couches or mats. They did not sit in chairs with their heads pointed toward the food and their feet sticking out away from the center of the meal. So they're in a circle, looking toward and eating the food, with their feet facing out. This is important for what we're about to see. Now, Martha is there. And Martha is doing what Martha does. Martha definitely has a gift. It's the gift of service. She's here at this meal serving... Now, look behind the text here. It's not even her home, and she's serving. That's what she does. She wants to serve, and she especially wants to serve Jesus. Do you see what she's not doing? She's not complaining. She's not saying like she did before, Lord, make my sister help. Make these other people help. I'm overworked. No, you see, when God's grace in Jesus Christ comes to us, it doesn't change who we are. It makes us the best that we were intended to be. So Martha's still a servant, but now she rejoices in serving. She's glad to serve, and she is there. Lazarus is a guest at this meal. He is reclining at table with Jesus and the others. So he is there participating. I'm sure that the conversation is, is animated. You could just imagine Simon saying in the midst of the, as they pass the, the bread, you know, this was remarkable. I, I was sick with leprosy. You don't know what that's like. The skin was falling off. It was horrible. I was itching. I couldn't go out to places. It was, and Jesus saved me from all that. And Lazarus says, you think that's something? I was dead. I was dead for four days. And Jesus came. And he brought me back to life. And you can imagine everyone just saying, that's Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. 
And I imagine there were other stories as well. Yes, we heard Jesus teaching in the city center. Oh, Jesus gave us bread. Oh, Jesus encouraged us as we mourned. Oh, Jesus did this. Jesus did that. You can imagine all of the testimonies of grace that Jesus had given to them. Now, Mary is unlike Martha. If Martha's gift is serving, Mary's gift is devotion. You know, if, if you want to know where Mary is, your first guess should always be at the feet of Jesus. That's where she is every time we see her. When Jesus comes back to bring Lazarus from the dead, she falls at his feet. She's, all, she's sitting at Jesus' feet when he's teaching. Here she's going to be at Jesus' feet again. She's totally devoted to Jesus. And so she comes up to Jesus as he's eating with a flask of ointment. John tells us that she takes the ointment and she anoints Jesus' feet and wipes them with her hair. Matthew and Mark add the additional details that she also pours it over Jesus' head and down his body. This flask is not a small thing. You see, when we hear ointment, and when we think about perfume, we think of very, very small containers. This was a pound of ointment, which converted from a Roman pound is basically about 12 ounces. So if you can imagine a large drink can, that's how much ointment she has. So what is Mary doing here? Why does she do this? I think the first thing we need to understand is that this is a deliberate action on her part. Remember, this is not her home. This is Simon's home. So she would have had to think beforehand, I'm going to this dinner. I'm going to anoint Jesus. I've got to bring the ointment with me. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to break the flask open. I'm going to start with his head. I'm going to anoint his body. I'm going to anoint his feet. And then I'm going to wipe his feet with my hair. She had to think about this in advance. I think that's important. This was not some spur of the moment thing. This unbelievable, incredible spiritual display of devotion is a result of planning and commitment. Too often in the church today, we think the only way to be spiritual is to be spontaneous. Mary's story denies that. Now, when Mary did this, it was also open and it was public. There was no hiding what she had done. She wanted everyone to know about her commitment to Jesus. And she wanted everyone to know just how important Jesus was. This act of anointing is reminiscent of the anointing of kings and of priests. It is worthy of our attention. Jesus is worthy. Think about your relationship with Jesus. Do others know how much you value Jesus? Are you willing not only to publicly identify with Jesus, but to show how much you want to serve him? That's becoming more and more of a challenge in our world. It was a challenge in Mary's day. Yet Mary leapt at the opportunity to give a public display of her commitment to Jesus. Now, why did Mary do this? Her actions show her heart. 
Jesus tells us elsewhere that it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. But I think here what we see also is that out of our actions, our heart is seen. Seeing Mary's devotion to Jesus gives us insight. We see first that Mary's action was a humble action. Mary is not the person of honor here. Jesus is. The dinner is in his honor. She isn't even invited to the dinner. She's not among the diners. And also John emphasizes that she anointed Jesus' feet. This was not ordinary in this day. In fact, it was all but unheard of. Even slaves had a right not to touch their master's feet. That's because feet in this day were dirty and they were unpleasant. It was not something anyone was obligated to touch. But Mary didn't hesitate. In fact, she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, when we hear that, that makes us a bit uncomfortable. That's not normal convention. But you have to know that this, in Jesus' day, was bordering on being scandalous. Women did not let their hair down in public. A woman letting her hair down was an act of intimacy. It was reserved for the privacy of the home. Wives did not let their hair down outside of the presence of their husbands. Unmarried women did not let their hair down out in public lest they be taken and punished for being improper. It was an intimate act, but Mary is solely focused on Jesus, not on what others might think of her. We might think of John the Baptist saying, He must increase, I must decrease. In the world we live in, that is so obsessed with reputation and platforms, are you willing to show yourself as a humble follower of Jesus? Do you point others to Jesus with your life? Is his glory more valuable to you than your pride? You see, Mary's heart is instructive here. She's pointing others to Jesus. Humility. But it wasn't just a humble act, it was also a costly act. John doesn't leave us to guess. He says that it's expensive and that Mark says it's very costly. There was a great deal of this ointment, this perfume. About 12 ounces. Now you may wonder, as you look at this, exactly what nard is. I'm not going to leave you with a curiosity for Google. Nard is an oil extract from a plant from India. And so you can see that it would be extremely expensive. Those days were not like our days. You know, almost everything in our home travels across an ocean to show up. We have items in our home from China, from Japan, from Korea, from Africa, from South America, from Europe. In Jesus' time, anything that had to be taken from beyond the very local area, would be incredibly costly. And so we don't know 
how Mary came across this costly ointment. It could have been something that her father bequeathed to her through an inheritance after he died. It could have been something that she was a wealthy person. We don't know. It could have been something that she'd saved all her life for as an investment. Judas estimates its value at 300 denarii. Now, a denarius is one day's wages for a man. So 300 denarii is about one year's wages because you weren't working every single day. You weren't working on Sabbaths. You weren't working on a few holidays. So it's basically a year's wages. So if we take a nice round number that actually is a little bit of an underselling for Katie, let's call it $50,000. Now, ladies, you can help the men understand this. Perfume is expensive, isn't it? You don't use it too freely. I know that all of the ladies that I have acquaintance with, including my wife, do not put perfume on by scooping up a bunch in their hand and throwing it up in the air and letting it rain on them. They don't pour it all over their head. Why? Because it's costly. You want it to last. You put a dab here and a dab there. I know that there are some women who have perfume that's so expensive they only wear it on special occasions. Now, you need to think about this. This is a $50,000 bottle of perfume, essentially. But Mary is not counting the dollars here. She made a conscious decision to honor Jesus this way. She brought the flask with her. And she didn't just use a drop. That's what a host would often do in Jesus' day. No, she started at Jesus' head and anointed his whole body, ending with his feet. She broke the flask, Mark tells us, so there was no going back. None of it could be kept. She used all of it. The heart that is captured by Jesus holds nothing back. It doesn't worry about saving for later. Or the cost. It knows that Jesus is the only and best treasure. Do you see your heart's reflection in Mary's? If you know how worthy Jesus is, you won't spare any cost to be with him. But not everyone was impressed with Mary. We can imagine that some were shocked by what she did. And at least one gave vent to criticism, Judas. Now, we approach this story knowing the truth about Judas. John knows the truth after the fact, and he gives us this parenthetical that Jesus is the one who is to betray him. So you need to approach this with the facts at hand, not what you know. I mean, I understand I didn't study the directory closely. I didn't go through our church software closely. But I know for a fact we have more than a few Marys in our congregation. There's not one Judas. Nobody names their kid Judas. Now, be clear here. Judas is a completely different name from Judah or from Jude. There are no Judases in the world today. So, we approach this story already knowing that. But what we need to do is look at Judas's reaction and see how it shows his heart. Judas's reaction sounds 
pious and good at first. He says, why all this waste? $50,000 spent in one moment? Do you know how many meals at the soup kitchen we could have provided with this? Do you know how much good we could have done with this money? And, and Judas wasn't alone. Because Mark tells us there were others who were indignant and that they scolded Mary for doing this. Matthew writes that the disciples were indignant. Now picture this. Judas is leading the charge, making an outcry, and others, including, I think, John, chime in. Well, Judas is making a good point here. Why all this waste? This is a reminder to us that it is all too easy to go along with critical comments, especially when there's a momentum behind them. We have to stop and think for ourselves, not just be a part of the crowd. But John is relating this incident for a greater purpose. He's not just trying to give us proper etiquette. He's not just trying to get us to avoid a guilt trip of, you know, you really could give that to the poor. Because after all, almost Everything we do, virtually everything we spend money on here in Katy, could be given to the poor instead. Every non-essential expense could be a source of guilt. That's not what's happening here. John wants us to see how a rebellious, unregenerate heart views Jesus. Yes, Judas's heart reaction is not primarily about Mary or her actions or even the expense. It's about Jesus. Judas doesn't care anything for the poor. John tells us that. He wasn't going to give it to the poor anyway. He was going to use it as an opportunity to steal. Judas didn't care about Jesus because after all, in just a few days, he will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's likely one-tenth of what Mary spent in honoring Jesus. Judas was only thinking about himself. After Mary wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, the entire home was filled with the fragrance of her devotion, we see in verse 3. I want you to imagine what that's like. I have a habit that I'm very fond of at home. It's not so pleasing to my wife and daughter. Whenever in my home there is a smell that I don't enjoy of any sort, I take out these little canisters of things that I love called Febreze or air. I don't care what the brand is as long as it smells good. And I will not only spray in the area where the offensive odor is, I walk throughout the entire downstairs spraying the spray so that the whole house smells wonderful. Now, for my wife and daughter, it's just too much, but I am enraptured. I walk around just smelling that smell, thinking how wonderful it is. That's what's happening here in this home. You couldn't get into any part of Simon's home and not smell this ointment and not be reminded of Jesus and not be reminded of the honor. You could go into the kitchen. You could go into the bedroom. You could go into the corner. You could go where the pets are. And it would smell everywhere because as Mary wiped his feet with her hair, everywhere she went, 
There was the scent of devotion. But the smell of Judas's mock spirituality stunk to high heaven. John wants us to be influenced by thinking about this. We can smell the difference. And it should make us think about our relationship to Jesus. What is your spiritual smell when you're in a place? Or even better, when you leave a place? What do people remember you by? Are others brought to Jesus by being around you? Do your words point them to Jesus or to yourself? The testimony of our hearts is always on display. What do we want it to say? Well, we've seen Mary's action and we've seen Judas's reaction. John has given us a sense of how those reflect their hearts. We know who Mary is and we know who Judas is. But John doesn't want us to leave with a shadow of doubt. He wants there to be no debate about what we are seeing. So he brings us Jesus' reaction to what has happened. Now, we might have expected that apart from Judas, in a vacuum, Jesus would theologically agree with the statement, this could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus wouldn't agree with Judas, but the position we would think. Because after all, Jesus is very much for the poor. Especially when so many people in Israel are not. His entire life and ministry has been serving others and providing for them. So, he might not be in favor of this great expense, even on his behalf. But Jesus doesn't just excuse Mary. He actually praises her. In verse 7, he says, leave her alone, clearly implying she's done nothing wrong. Matthew and Mark also record that he says, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Why is this beautiful? Why is such a costly act of devotion good? From Mary's perspective, she wanted to show great love to Jesus in an extravagant way. She didn't know how much longer she would have Jesus with her. After all, there was a plot out to kill him. And Mary may have even understood more of Jesus' words about going to the cross than the disciples did at this point. He had told them about his coming death. Jesus' reaction is grounded in the truth of his coming sacrifice for Mary, others, and us. Jesus sees this act as the precursor to his sacrificial death. That's why he mentions the day of his burial. He mentions it as if it's coming soon. And you know what it is. While the disciples are wandering around, not knowing or seeing what's about to happen, Mary has brought attention to it. That's why Jesus will say... In another gospel, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's what we're doing right now. Mary's act reminds us that Jesus willingly died for sinners. The Son of God suffered and died for unworthy people like you and me. 
He died so that everyone who believes in Him could be free from sin and have everlasting life. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Let Mary point the way for you. There's one last thing that we are meant to see. Jesus gives us not only His reaction, but He gives us a reminder. A reminder not about how good Mary was or how bad Judas was, but a reminder about Himself. Because, you see, this account was recorded not so that you could walk away and say, I'm going to be more like Mary and less like Judas today. No, Jesus closes with a powerful statement in verse 8. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Stop and think about that for a moment. Is Jesus really saying, who cares about the poor? Or that the poor aren't that important? Now, we might think that if we applied that statement to ourselves. Now, what would you think if I made an announcement that the session had just bought me my own personal airplane. That they'd taken all of the funds of the church and they'd used it to buy me an airplane so I could fly around when I wanted to and wouldn't have to wait at an airport. Now, wait a minute. What if when the inevitable questions came, my answer was, hey, I'm worth it. I should have my own plane. Don't you know that? That would be arrogant. That would be foolish. That would make no sense at all. But we have to remember, this is Jesus. Jesus can make that statement because He is worth it. He's more valuable than anyone or anything because He is God Himself. He is the one who sacrificed, coming to earth, suffering and dying for sinners like you and me. He is worthy of all extravagant devotion and worship because of who He is and what He's done. Is this the Jesus you know? The Savior who is worth all honor and praise? If you look around the world today, you will see that people don't have a problem with you mentioning Jesus or a moderate amount of religion. What people don't understand is costly, reckless, radical devotion to Jesus. And that's what we're called to. You cannot love Jesus too much. You cannot follow him too closely. You cannot praise him too highly. May the Lord write that truth on your hearts and have the scent of devotion to Jesus follow you wherever you go. Let's pray.